You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco, and this is episode 306, dated Friday, April 28th, 2023. Before we continue, let me introduce Peter Alchul, my good friend and co-host. Peter, when are you going to get rain? I don't know, but we sure need it. Uh, we're my having, goodness. We're having beautiful weather, but we really do need the rain, so... Uh, I don't know what to say beyond that, except, uh, welcome from Columbia, Missouri, where, oh. where, we're about two hours away from the NFL draft in Kansas City. Yes. Round two tonight. Yep. And three. And three and round four tomorrow. Yep. Anyway, yep. I want to thank those people who make it possible to have in perspective available to the public. We start out with Raymond Gay, our producer. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline, thank you for posting our programs. We also have Jacqueline Sylvia of JS Web Solutions. Thank you very much for archiving our shows on my website. All you have to do is go to www.brancoevents.com and click on In Perspective Podcasts and you will see our archives there. And finally, the media outlets. Thank you very much for airing us when you do. It's much appreciated. We gain more listeners. And what I would like to do at this time, because there are media outlets that attract listeners that are not on my mailing list, so I want to give out the email address in case people have a comment about our show. It's bobbranco93, that's B-O-B-B-R-A-N-C-O, 93, at gmail.com, bobbranco93 at gmail.com. I also have three listeners that I would like to say hello to today. Randa Hassley from Texas, Rick Troiano from Florida, and Brian J. Coppola from Massachusetts. Hello out there. And before we go any further, I also want to merci, Jackie. I expected that, Peter. I waited for that. Thank you. I'm sure Jackie appreciates that as well. Yeah, I'm sure she does too. We have a guest on our show that's been on before. The last time he was on, he was promoting uh, one of his books, I believe. But today he's on to talk about a subject that's near and dear to most of us, employment of the blind. His name is Anthony Candela. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are, Bob. Okay, because Jaws sometimes mispronounces people's names, and I've been caught in that trap several times, so I want to make sure that I pronounced your name properly, Tony. Tony Candela, he is the director of the Vision uh, Specialist Program. Vision Specialist Program from Mississippi State University. That's his official title. But he's here to talk about employment of the blind. Tony, before we continue, I want to make a comment about a figure that struck out at me when I got your bio, and I got your list of topics also, and maybe you can elaborate on why not too many people know this figure. Apparently, there's a 48% employment rate of the blind. We always thought it was 70%. Could you tell us why we may have been deceived, if at all? Sure. It, it's the unemployment rate that is touted um, or has been historically touted as 70%. 70% unemployed. So now we uh, can say we are at 52% unemployed, uh, which is probably more accurate. 
Um, so the, the employment rate is 48% and just subtracting the unemployment rate is 52%. That's good news, I guess. Yes, it's good news. It means things are trending in the correct direction. If you look at the glass as half filled, um, then it's really good news. If you look at the glass as half empty, we still have 52% unemployment that we, we have to, we have to fix that. The, the national population's unemployment rate, while we're sitting at 52%, the national rate for everybody is around 4% or so. So we got a long, long uh, way to go in a large gulf between well, us and everybody to, else. Not to throw a monkey wrench into this, but I hear this with the real unemployment rate of everybody in this country. There are a lot of people who don't count in the statistic because they are off the rolls and they're not considered as unemployed. Is that the case with the blind? Yeah. So what they, they talk about something called labor force participation. And so if you are um, counted as actively looking um, or actively working, either of those two working or actively looking, then you're considered to be participating in the labor force. So, Blind people, I believe I just got the number is at 56% labor force participation. And I did some calculations in a general public is around 76% labor force participation. So even on, even with the best number, you still have almost a quarter of the people and the number counts for age 16 and above. So you have about a quarter of the people age 16 and above in the country in general, not in the labor force. And we have, uh, uh, you know, we have about, uh, you know, 64% um, not in the labor force. So we have, uh, I never could subtract in my head right, but we have a lot more people who are blind not showing up as looking. And there's lots of reasons for that that actually go to, you know, what we have to do to work on improving the employment rate of blind people, uh, why so many of them are not even counted in the labor force at all. I've been hearing this since 1981 when I joined one of the consumer groups. So I'm wondering what's changed in the last 42 years. Well, the, on the glasses half full side, um, Let's say we'll start 50 years ago when the Rehabilitation Act was passed and uh, one of the first pieces of the civil rights movement for, for, for uh, people with disabilities, uh, Section 504 of that act was passed. And at least that got the federal government actively involved in promoting employment and buying, buying good technologies, things like that, Section 504 and Section 508. And uh, then the next big jump uh, as the consumerism movement uh, proceeded would be the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. Now that's 20, that's 33 years ago now. And for the longest time, the statisticians couldn't see any change in the employment rate. And, uh, but now, now as time has gone by, we see that improvement. So what's, what's changed, I think, is uh, a couple of things. One, assistive technology and access to the ability to perform a wider array of work tasks. Uh, and the other thing is the uh, increasing awareness um, among employers that they have an obligation to treat people with disabilities fairly. In the blindness uh, area, again, it's the same phenomena. We have better technologies, 
And we have more, more effort toward encouraging people to go to work, I think, than ever before. Um, in the last 20 years, for example, a lot more emphasis working with the teenagers and what they, you know, what they call transition programs, uh, so that, uh, these kids coming out of school are better prepared today than, than we were when we were kids. That, that is for sure. So those are some of the things. I think having laws that make employers have to behave in certain ways, it does two things. One, it kind of notifies them that there are people out there that they should be considering and should be giving a fair shake at. And the other thing, it actually helps to educate them on what they need to do to prepare to make their workplaces accessible. Uh, laws have a tendency to do that, whereas everything else doesn't. Anthony, before we go any further, can you talk about what uh, what particularly interests you? What got you interested in this particular arena, the employment, the employment among people who are blind or unemployment? What 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 got you interested in, in that in this in this field or problem? Well, way back when it was my turn to make a career decision, I decided I was gonna gonna become a rehab counselor. And so many of us uh, do who have a disability ourselves. And uh, so right away, I was thrown into a career where where my number one job was to help people get get employed. And I've uh, worked with the blind all my career um, and um, really, really, as time went on, got more and more interested in the things that have to happen systemically to improve the the employment rate of blind people. So I worked for agencies that provided services, and then I worked for think tank organizations that tried to do systems change, uh, like the American Foundation for the Blind. I worked for them for a while. And uh, I just never stopped uh, uh, being interested. And then when you happen to have the same disability and you are facing the same problems as what you are professionally committed to do, then it just doubles your interest. So as hard as it is sometimes to work in the same field where you are so personally uh, affected, um, it also is a big motivator. So that's pretty much it. My entire career has been around the area of employment. Uh, Anthony, I think I heard you say that you work for um, Mississippi State. I assume that means yeah. you work for the uh, NRTC folks. Is that is that correct? Uh, uh, is that right? Yeah, this is my current job. It's it's a part-time job, and uh, it's done by remote. And there's a program there called Vision Specialist Program that uh, has been around for about 25 years. And I direct the program. It's a four-course uh, program, 12 graduate credits, basically designed to take people who now work with the blind who didn't used to, and need to learn how to work with them. So a lot of times this is rehab counselors who are working in general disability areas or, or don't have a blind caseload. And now they do have a blind caseload. And this four course program was designed to get them up to speed on how to work with the blind. And I, I know that NRTC is doing some work in the employment arena, maybe a lot of work. Um, how does your job, uh, 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 um, Connect with that, with that well, work. When we're working with the, um, uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of employment elements to the coursework. 
So when we're working with the um, the students, we usually have about 13 to 15 students. They're, they're all working people. They're working professionals. Um, there's an awful lot of emphasis on uh, the nature of blindness, how to uh, how to function well with blindness, and uh, all of the skill areas that go into employment, everything from assistive technology to just learning how to take care of your daily needs, um, and then up to uh, the, the the job placement process itself. All right. So let's talk a little about this whole employment arena. It's, it's of course, a complicated uh, hydra-headed monster, as it were. Many, 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 many heads uh, uh, working at cross-purposes sometimes. What, are the, what do you think are the sort of the critical areas that uh, that blind people, we, we blind folks, need to improve in to be more work-ready, as it were? And then we'll talk about the employment side. Okay. Um, Employer side, I meant to say. So it's it's uh as you say, many, many headed Hydra, so many different elements go into this. And, uh, I recently worked with a whole bunch of folks. We were teaching them job seeking skills. And, uh, so you, you, you get to see what people are contending with. And some are contending with, uh, one of the big problems, which is where they live. Um, there's not really good transportation to get to work. And since the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of jobs that blind people can do um, have gone remote. So that has actually assisted with the transportation problem. But when you survey blind people and you ask them, what is like one of the biggest barriers to employment that you face, they will inevitably have transportation high on the list. Um, so the things to do in that regard are, um, and, and, I, and I'm not going to say ask people to relocate because I sure hate that one. Um, but what you, what you can do is you, you help people to figure out, like, how can they get the transportation they need if they can't do their jobs remotely? And it's everything from, from, uh, you know, the, the, the using the available transportation to friends, family, if you have them, and a whole lot of people don't have them available to coworkers on the job, carpools, things of that nature. And uh, relocating is is always like a last resort, and I know people who have. Um, and I only relocated when my job was in California, and I was still living in New York. But uh, other than that, I've never had to relocate for a job myself. But those are some of the things you do with transportation. The next one, it, go ahead. Before, before you go on to transportation, one of the, one of the ones that you uh, that I know is a big one is paratransit. You know, uh, folks who, you know, the, 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 the service that's made available to people with disabilities to get from. I use it. And one of the issues I've experienced, and I'm sure other people have as well, is the unreliableness of paratransit to get, to get you there on time. And for, uh, for the workplace, this is important, you know, to, you can't say to your boss Mm -hmm. every day, gee, I'm sorry, uh, uh, paratransit, uh, you know, was, 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 was late again. Um, is is there anything being done sort of in the paratransit arena to try to address that problem or can it be addressed at all? Well, I don't know enough about the paratransit systems, even, even the one here in New York to, to know if anything is being done to improve it. But what you do see all the time is budget fights, you know, city, municipal, county budget fights for how much money is being poured into it or not poured into it. And so I 
I expect uh, that the, the best approaches are, are more political ones than anything else, because what it ends up being in the end is enough vehicles, enough drivers, enough routes, frequency of routes, things like that. Um, I suppose driver training, things like that, that maybe make drivers more efficient could be a part of this. But uh, that the issue of paratransit is something that um, is probably most affected by what's going on in politics and with budgets than anything else. So it's not much of an answer. That's all I got for you. Well, I, I will, I will, I will share, I will share this, I will share this experience. I was interviewing for a job in, in the Chicago area actually. And one of the perks they offered employer employees, uh, is, uh, a, a van shuttle service from certain places in Chicago to the office. And it was amazing. Uh, people never arrived late to work. Because this was something that employers did, you know, and they threw some money at the problem so that people, people felt comfortable using the service and they knew they'd get to work on time. It's amazing how this works. Is that a good example? Yeah. It really is amazing how this works. Uh, you know, uh, if, 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 if it's the right program and there's, you know, the right money spent wisely, this problem can be resolved, but it, it mm-hmm. does take some, uh, some extra work. Yeah. And large, large employers, I, I think that, um, you know, you hear, you hear all the time discussions of, uh, you know, whether, whether large employers, um, have, have any kind of a sense of, of social conscious, conscience at all, um, you know, doing the right thing. And, uh, and, and it goes to every, every aspect of life, income distribution to just being a, a moral company. Um, and this is an example of that where, where you can support your employees, um, through, through providing a transportation service. Um, not only does it make it easier for people who can't drive or won't drive, but it also you can even brag about how you're saving the environment and things like that. But mostly you're doing it because, uh, it, it affects your bottom line and it's the right thing to do. So yeah. I, I love the example. It's a great example. So please I'll talk about the other issues we're talking about. Let's talk about another head we need to address. Um, one, one of the things that I, I notice a lot when I deal with, with large numbers of uh, blind or visually impaired people who, who really want to work, but they've been having a hard time working, um, is, is that uh, they, they don't have any recent work experience. And so the longer that that goes on, the longer that it goes on that you don't have recent work experience, um, the harder it gets to, uh, to, to, to convince an employer that you are ready to go to work. So for that one, the voc rehab system has developed things like, uh, you know, work experience training and internships. And we all know about volunteer work, any activity that, that people can do that gets them, gets them, uh, you know, doing a task, working, helping an employer in some way or other, um, is good for the resume. So one of the barriers, uh, lack of recent work experience has to be tackled in some way. And it doesn't have to be with a paid job. If you, if you could get the paid job, then you will have solved your problem already anyways. So this is about when you're having trouble getting that, that paid job, what do you do? So you got to solidify that resume in some way or other. So if you're connected to a system that can help you get an internship or if you can do volunteer work or a little of each, um, best to do it. 
It also gets you um, up out of your chair and moving around and actively engaging the world of work, which really does help you when you're talking to an employer, let's say you're at an interview, just to be able to feel comfortable with being in a workplace. Because if you're not in one for a very long time, you you sort of start to become uncomfortable. So yeah. getting work experience is uh, whichever way you can do it is the next piece of the Hydra's heads. So, so Tony, one of the things I've noticed over the, I don't know, past, say the past 10 or 15 years, as you mentioned, uh, more and more voc rehab uh, folks are working with young people to give, get them work experience, whether it be through internships or, or, uh, or externships or, uh, whatever, whatever it is. Is there any, any research that's showing how effective these programs are, are, are in fact at getting people hired? Is there any research that's, sh- that's, it, it should work? But is there any research out there that's saying, hey, this is a good thing and here's, here's how it's improving matters? You know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there is that I'm not up enough on it right now to be able to tell you, um, except for with transition age kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a little bit more there because it's such a, um, high, kind of a high intensity area. There's money being thrown into it. So a little, little bit more, um, uh, you know, uh, data gathering, et cetera on it. And, and it really does help. When, when the kids are, are, are being trained and given work experience. I, I think that it can't possibly hurt. And there's so many intangible ways that it can help that may not even be measurable. Right. Um, that it's still a good thing to do. So that's the, that's probably all we can really say, um, until I dig up some articles for you. Yeah, I haven't seen any research either, which is why I was wondering if you had, because it's, it's, it should be, have a positive impact, but I haven't seen anything you know, in, in the, not that I focus on this literature in great depth to, to indicate that it is in fact making a difference. It should, but I haven't seen any evidence that it is. You know what I'm yeah, trying to say? It's, it's one of those things. Even, even, uh, the folks, uh, at the National Research and Training Center on Blindness and Low Vision, where, where my, my program is a part of, those research scientists, um, are, are doing work with, uh, with youngsters, teaching them how to get their own jobs. And, and then following up with them a year later after they finish school to see what their status is. They are gathering, they're gathering information that shows this is a very positive thing to be doing. Um, helping them maybe get their first job. And then after that, let's say there are summer jobs that they're helping the kids get. Then the next job, the kids have to get that job on their own. And, uh, and then, then the next job after that might be one that they get when, let's say they're out of high school or they go to college or something like that. So that kind of research, again, on those youngsters, uh, shows positive effects. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can, uh, you can only guess that this is probably, uh, you know, helpful for everybody no matter what age they are. Penny, do you find in your experience that employers are more cooperative and more receptive to the concept of hiring the blind than ever before? And if so, how? I doubt very much, and my and my experience is a little bit slim on this, but from what I hear, from what I read, um, I doubt very much if employers are any more receptive to hiring anybody with disabilities than they ever were before. But they are less resistant because they have to be, because there are more examples of success. So what, what we do when we promote hiring people with disabilities is we promote the success stories and we get employers to talk to other employers. 
because they'll listen to their fellow employer before they'll listen to me. Yep. So they, um, so they're less resistant and they're more encouraged. They're not necessarily looking for, except under very special circumstances, they're not really looking to hire people with disabilities or blind people, but given the right circumstances and if they're presented with positive examples and if somebody knocks on their, their door and says, Hey, I'm a placement specialist and I've got a caseload of qualified individuals. If we can make a couple of matches, um, I will have this pre-screened individual at your doorstep and we will be there to provide support to you to get this person onboarded and, and acclimated to the job. So when you intervene like that, then employers do get excited because then they think they can, uh, uh, they, they can, you know, fulfill their duty to hire people with disabilities, which there is a consciousness about, um, and they will have help doing it. Without those kind of things, I think they're just as scared now as they ever have been. Um, uh, to hire anybody with a disability because they are always asking the very same questions today that they've been asking, um, well, since we were all kids a long time ago. So I want to, uh, talk about technology because, because to me, this is a, a big issue that has lots of positives and unfortunately, from my perspective, uh, more negatives that we often want to talk about. So talk about your, your take on how technology is helping and, and hurting us in uh, us blind folks in the work in the workplace. Well, you know, an interesting way that it might be hurting us is that we become so dependent on it that we forget the, um, that there are old fashioned ways of doing things, uh, including, you know, partnering up with your coworkers to perform certain tasks in mm-hmm. a positive way, in a mutually beneficial way, you know, where, where, you know, you're carrying your weight and they're carrying their weight. And we forget about those things and everybody forgets about those things because we think that the, give the person the assistive technology, make sure that they can use uh, the software, right. Um, and of course, based on the work environment. And uh, then they are no longer in need of uh, anything else special. We can just leave them alone. Um, by the way, I live in the Bronx in New York City, so you will hear a siren here and there now and again. Reminds uh, me, reminds me of the old days. I lived in New York. I lived in Manhattan for many years. So, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it'll add to the flavor of the podcast. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so the, the, that that's a negative that I always caution people about, and, uh, and including professionals who are working with blind and visually impaired folks, is make sure that they know how to do things with, with, uh, out the technology, whatever those things might be, so that they don't become so overly dependent upon the technology that if the technology either is not working properly or for some reason is not there, that they are, they're helpless. So we want them to have multiple ways of doing as many things as they must do, uh, so that they're not dependent upon one way of doing it. So that, that's the negative side. The, the positive side is uh, most everybody believes that technology is our salvation, um, including employers. So if you tell an employer, um, you know, we've got some folks that, that we can, we can uh, you know, or you can hire that uh, they know their technology, employers immediately feel more relaxed. It may not even be for totally... Uh, completely valid reasons that they're relaxed. But since they believe that technology is our salvation, 
We take advantage of that because there's going to be uh, bugs to iron out in every job you go to. Nothing is ever going to work smoothly right away. Um, all of it, all the time. So there's always going to be bugs. So, but that is an advantage. Everybody believes in technology as, as our salvation. Well, I'll tell you, Anthony, I'll tell you one thing that I've always told people, especially in the past few years, as you know, as a blind person, and Peter might agree with me too, and our participants might agree as well, that we always seem to need to upgrade our technology sooner rather than later, and we're forced Mm -hmm. to get trained elsewhere, which means we may have to leave our jobs to learn something new. I don't think employers would appreciate that all the time, where they're valued employee that they've gotten to know as a blind employee has to leave in order to learn an upgrade. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, been a worry of mine um, in my own personal uh, circumstance. Um, you know, I've, I've had a, oh, about four part-time jobs since I took my official retirement in 2015. I was working for the VA at the time. And each one of those jobs required me to deal with um, legacy software and deal with um, different computer systems in different types of workplaces. And, and, then, and then new technologies keep coming along um, as software developers out there keep, keep developing new things. Um, I remember the last time I was with AFB a few years ago in a, in a part-time job, all of a sudden they, they were using meeting software and uh, they were using things like Trello, which is, uh, it, it helps you, it helps you monitor statistics and also helps you monitor, uh, you know, projects. It's project management software. Um, then they were using, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but the software where you can kind of quick chat with your coworkers instead of sending email messages all the time. You could do these really quick little chats with them. Um, and, uh, and all these things, all of a sudden I'm, I'm having to learn how to use them and struggling with some of them. And there's just no place to go to learn this stuff, really. In, in all practicality, there's no place to go to learn this stuff. If, except if you research it yourself, if you're a JAWS user, talk to uh, to Freedom Scientific, the Sparrow Group. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get into uh, some blind computer user groups, which is a really, really good and valuable thing, if you can find one, you will have trouble. And I did. I did have trouble learning some of these strange new softwares. And if by chance you hit an employer with an old software package that goes back in their history 30 years or 40 years, it is possible that your software, your assistive technology won't work with that at all. Or if they change the software because now they're upgrading to something modern, you have to worry. So having to go away to learn the new, the new software is a very bad thing. Much better to be trained while you're still working on the job so you can keep your job and you can keep on going. And really, that's what ought to be the case. We should not have to leave jobs or even take a leave of absence from a job. We really should just be able to learn while we're on the job how to do the new, the new tasks and use the I new agree with you. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Anthony, uh, you, your mention of the, of, uh, VA reminds me of something. Uh, I know of two folks, and I know this is a problem in other, uh, organizations as well. This is not just the VA, 
where uh, we uh, I know I know of at least two people, very talented people and doing the work they were doing who were forced out because the technology they changed their technology, mm-hmm. which which was less accessible mm-hmm. or inaccessible to uh you know t- uh, 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 to the work they were doing and uh uh they had to leave the folks I'm thinking about had to leave and I don't think this is unusual and I'm curious first of all about your take on the VA if if you heard similar kinds of stories and if that is the case that a lot that some people have to either stay in the job they're at because they can't because that if they get promoted, they can't use the software that the promotion entails, or they have to leave outright because the technology has changed and the, uh, the, the adaptive part has not, can't change fast enough. How, is this, a, how much of an issue do you think this is and what can be done about it? Well, I have heard of situations like you're mentioning at the VA in particular. They, they've got so many different systems that they can, mess around with that could cause you to lose your job um, that, uh, that that are very complex. And it's according to which part of the VA we're talking about. If we're, but if we're talking about the part that has to do with the, uh, the health care system, that was the part that I was in. Um, and there's two other parts. The other, the, the other one is the benefit system. That's where people get their VA checks from. And you go to the VA building in your town. And the third one is the cemeteries. But the one that's the hardest, I think, is the healthcare system because it could be everything from from the uh, the clerk's um, patient management system, you know, bringing a patient on on board in your hospital to tracking their progress through and making appointments for them and canceling appointments and things like that. If they start mucking with that system to make it more efficient, which is exactly what they did a few years ago um, when they were they were discovered to be losing losing track of some patients. Uh, that uh, they needed to make it better for the clerks. Well, 99.99% of the clerks had to learn a new system without, and, and they did without any difficulty. And a few people who were blind lost their jobs. They just changed the system so much. And then, then there's a system where everybody from counselors to doctors enter the patient data. This is where you write your case notes. Uh, for doctors, prescriptions, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, while I was at the VA, I saw them transition over to where there were no more, there were no more transcription typists and dictation machines. Uh, like in the old days, doctors would just stand there practically next to the operating table, di- dictating their notes into a voice recognition system that would then type up their notes and, cr- and create digital files of their notes, right? in the middle of the procedure. Wow. Um, oh, it's amazing. And then when I had a procedure about a year ago, just before the anesthesia took effect, I swear to God, I heard my doctor dictating. I'm telling you. Uh, so so this is real. Now, I don't know, like what it did was it eliminated a lot of transcription typing jobs, which mm-hmm. blind people used to have a lot of in, in the old days. Um, but it also I took, changed- transcri- I took transcription in high school and I used the dictaphone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know it well. Yes. Yeah. And and it, it, it altered the software. I mean, it's a whole new software platform to be able to handle this kind of information processing. Um, and so in systems like that and other complex systems, too, not just the VA, but any any complex system with this multiple multiple aspects of the system, um, you could you could find a software change, uh, a modernization, 
mostly that, a modernization that could uh, could be alien to your assistive technology. Now, what what I've also heard, which is really bad, um, you used to hear, especially with JAWS users, you used to hear about um, the, the thing called scripting, mm-hmm. where you could go in and uh, and, and just uh, re-retailer the JAWS to see the screens, and uh, where maybe out of the box JAWS could no longer see those screens. So you you uh, you reconfigure everything. And uh, the bad news is that there are fewer and fewer scripters because a lot of the, um, the scripting is actually being done by JAWS automatically. So it's like reacting more in real time with the software. Well, what this means is that when it's not a, a, a automatically reacting, you have fewer people out there with the skills to go ahead and, and tailor make the, the screens so that JAWS can see them better. Um, so, Anthony, we so, have about we have about twenty minutes, and I think this is a good opportunity to invite our participants to take part in our discussion. So why don't I do that? You are listening to In Perspective. I'm Bob Branco, and Peter Alchel is our co-host, and we're speaking with Anthony Candela about employing the blind. A very popular topic here. So Raymond, our producer, will tell us if there are any hands raised at the moment. Phone number ending in 517, you are up first, and so far there's the only person. Okay. Hi, this is Mary Beth. Um, Hi, I just Mary. had a question. Hi, how are you guys doing today? We're well, um, thank and you. And Tony, you probably don't remember me, but I remember you from the commission. Um, anyway, I I am a retired uh, personnel administrator, and so I've you know been around for a very long time. And I guess the question that, that I have for, for you is um, – and please don't misunderstand me on this. I'm a big fan of, you know, legislation and all this. But I guess what I was wondering is, do, do you see that sometimes um, prospective, you know, job applicants come in, they know, you know, well, the law says that, you know, they have to provide this for me. Do you find that, that um, they some people actually sort of suffer from a, an unrealistic sense of entitlement? You know, well, the law says you should do this for me, and so you should do it, and I'm not going to do anything. And whereas I think, you know, certainly when I was when I was um, looking for a job or changing a job, for me it was a huge survival skill. You know, they changed the technology. I better I better do research this quickly because I'm going to need to know how to do this, and I don't want to lose my job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wondering what you thought about that. Thanks. Uh, you're welcome. Well, nice to hear from a fellow New Yorker and in, the, in the business. Um, That's right, fellow state employee. <laughs> we're, st- we're still we're still here. We survived. We did. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> so you know what we what we you you definitely um, we 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 encourage everybody to make nice to the employer because they are the ones who giveth and taketh away. Um, so you don't want to go in, uh, you know, with, with the cudgel. Um, you, you, you want to go in really straightforwardly. Um, everybody knows or is, is kind of vaguely afraid of whatever laws might be out there that are getting ready to bite them. So, so, and, and this is actually the, the, the part about having laws that, that hurts us is the fear of the law itself. And what might happen, the lawsuit, I guess, really not the law, but the lawsuit that might happen if they do something wrong. And so what we teach, we teach uh, a couple couple of things. One, um, you definitely don't want to want to uh, go in the, with fists raised. 
Um, what you also want to do is um, take care of the employer um, and the employer's hesitation to even ask yeah. you anything about your disability at all, because that not asking you something, and there are legal ways to ask, um, especially if you walk in and are obviously blind or obviously have a disability, um, they're allowed to ask you to explain, like, how do you do this and how do you do that? And you need to be really, really ready to easily explain how you do this and how you do that. The other, the other thing is, um, we, we, um, uh, we, we want them to ask those questions. Um, and sometimes the only way we can get them to is to ask them if they have any questions about how we do things with our disability. The last thing that we would ever do is to tell them to go in with the, you know, with the law. Um, as as any kind of an incentive at all, we don't want to incentivize an employer that way, um, because your your working life with that employer will not be a happy one if somehow or other they feel coerced into hiring you. No, they just find someone like me that could write their way out of hiring anybody. Oh, as you know, it can be done. We have three yeah. other people to get to today. Just. You guys know. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it. Um, just, just, just a quick comment uh, about that, Anthony. I think your comment about uh, uh, teaching employers about how they can work around, if you will, ADA things about that you can ask, you can ask this, you you are allowed to ask disability related questions as long as they're also work related questions, mm-hmm. and that that gets lost somehow, and it mm-hmm. really uh, it make it really makes it complicated for for people. Both the interviewer and interviewee or the hiring manager and the person trying to get hired. It complicates matters immensely because in my experience, if people, if employers don't ask those kinds of questions, I'm never going to get hired. It just isn't going to happen. And my job is to make it more likely those questions will be asked. But nonetheless, uh, if, if employers could sort of understand that, that sort of thing, I think, I think we'd be a little further ahead. Ray. Okay. So thank you, Mary um, Beth. Melissa, you are first, and then it'll be Sharon, and then Dan. All right, Melissa. Okay, can you Melissa. hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Loud Wonderful. And clear. Oh, good. I I had to plug in my headset, so okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. But um, welcome. Th- th- thank you, gentlemen, so very much, and um. To our guests, it's wonderful to meet you. I'm originally from Mississippi, so this is kind of fun. Um, but I live in the beautiful state of Washington, where it is just gorgeous right now. So, thanks for having me. Um, so just to make a very long story short, cause I know you've got other people. Um, I have been unemployed now for a little over a year. Um, I worked for over 13 years at the lighthouse for the blind in Seattle, but then I had an on the job injury in 2020 with my hands and I no longer could do production work and it was just killing my, my whole body. And then, um, I worked for three months with the state of Washington for empl- um, employment security department. And then I got let go due to um, it was a non-permanent job. But thankfully, I am working with a career consultant with trying to find work. And the struggle that we are having right now, um, I'm working with a new job coach. And the struggle that we're having is that I is that I want to work with people with disabilities and I want to work remotely. But anytime that we go on like a website like Indeed or any of these job search websites, they tell you how to how to get reasonable accommodations or they tell you how to apply for a disability, something or other, but they're not giving us specific jobs that relate to what I want to do. 
And that's the frustration that I'm currently dealing with right now. And if I don't find work within the beginning of next year, then I'm going to have to make some transitions and possibly move out of state. Um, but she's, but she tells me that I'm very persistent with this whole job search thing and that I'm doing a really good job of just, um, not giving up, but just staying positive. And in fact, I just was interviewed for a job last week for a self advocacy educator position. Unfortunately, I didn't get the job, but I was told in the letter that my, um, experience with ACB and the advocacy work there and all that stuff really inspired them and that I may be able to apply for other jobs within the area. But that's what I'm facing right now. So do you have any suggestions, sir, around just just trying to find what I want to do? Because I don't want to work a job where I'm just feeling like, oh, my God, why am I even here? I want to say to people, I love my job and I have a passion for what I'm doing. So that's my question. I'm sorry, that was a long-winded question there. Well, I definitely resonate with you on wanting to do something that you're actually you know, happy and proud of. Um, no doubt about it. You don't want to, you don't want to like walk through life miserable. That's for sure. No. You know, the short, the short answer I think is, is, um, uh, is to spread your action as much as you can. So get a, get a lot of people helping you. Um, so we, we, um, we just emphasize a lot. Anytime we are helping people to, uh, to learn how to job seek, is to just get that network of people that know that you're looking for work or actually can help you look for work um, and spread it out there and do not feel guilty uh, that you're you're going beyond your job coach. Um, you you kind of okay. have to because you know sure. I don't I don't believe that anybody has all the answers. Hold on one second, I've got a cough. <laughs> That time of year. <laughs> uh, I, I, if I don't cough at least once during a podcast, then it's not a good podcast. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> so. so that's, uh, that's my, my short, my short answer to, to what is a really, really, it's hard. I know it's hard. A lot of folks um, say, say the same thing. It's really hard. And, and, uh, but to spread your action out there as much as you can, get as many people helping you as you can. Um, and then the other thing I, I have told people, it's almost like a mental, it's like mental health advice more than it is anything else is, um, keep, keep track that you're okay. You know, keep saying to yourself, am I okay? Am I okay? Can I keep going the way I'm going and be okay? And I mean, I mean like physically okay. I can, I can eat, have a roof over my head, that kind of thing. And then don't panic. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then don't panic. Just, just, just ride it out day, day by day, day by day. But get, getting the anxiety out and maybe even the panic out goes a long ways. So mm, I, I just want to, I, I just want to add something else. Um, and that is in my experience, sometimes you can't get the ideal job that you want, but you might be able to get the almost ideal job that you want. So I heard you say you want to, you know, uh, do some work around advocating for people with disabilities. Well, maybe there's another issue that, that interests you. Maybe not quite as strongly as disability that you might be able to look at as well. Uh, I'm not sure what that might be for you, but you know, you, sure. obviously, have, you obviously have the skills. So you might be able to find something else that's sort of tangential to what you want to do. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then the, my other comment, which is sort of, uh, off the wall is that any, anytime I hear, anytime I hear the word inspired from an employer, I cringe. Uh, because, <laughs> and, and I, I get it. Yeah. Okay. You get it. I, 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 won't, I won't say anything more than that. 
Uh, thank you. I hope that's of some help, Melissa. Well, well, thank you, gentlemen, so very much. Um, but you know, I am staying positive and um, and just it. trying to do you know everything I can. It's and uh, God, God bless you all very, very much. God Thanks, bless. Melissa. God bless you as well. Ray, thank you Ray, for Ray. All right. So, uh, next up is um Sharon, and then it'll be Dan. Okay. Hi, hey, Sharon. Um, Hello, Anthony and everyone. Anthony, I had retired from my full-time job a few years ago and just retired from a part-time job. And what I wanted to say about it is that I found that working remotely, while it had its mo- had, had its good sides, was also difficult because even while I was there for a couple of years remotely, technology changed. And so I had to have contact with the help desk on campus they would, uh, I worked for a medical school. They would not, of course, come to my house or anything. Um, and it, it, it got difficult. The other thing I wanted to say is I think Slack might be the name of the, like other, many other things out there now, the busyness of the screen is intense. Uh, I found this also for online courses that I had to take while I was working there, even kind of conflict of interest courses that all state employees had to do. They would be these little teeny sections and then you'd have to hit next and then there'd be slides and then next. Mm -hmm. And um, it just was very, very difficult. So I'm feeling right now that technology in many ways is not our friend Um, and remote. I think has been good for people, especially with transportation barriers, which many of us have. But I really think the hybrid is, if possible, the best solution because then you have other people to bounce things off of and job share with. Thank you. Uh, I think that's, that's very cogent. That's very, it's very true. You know, if you're going to work at home, um, and if you can't get somebody skillful helping you, backing you up, um, you're, you're vulnerable. Um, yes. And, and, uh, you know, I, I've got a neighbor who's very skillful, but I have to, I have to, um, uh, use him in, 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 in small doses with great care. So mm-hmm. I don't use him up. Right. Yep. And, yep. and so, you know, even when you have somebody, you, you have to, um, be careful how often you use the person. So, it's it's really hard and in the and the mixed model the the uh hybrid model of some days in the office some days not in the office uh it really does work cuz you do get an awful lot of support when you're physically there at the workplace yep right thank you thank you sharon uh dan dan uh can you hear me now we yes. can yes we can Thank you. One thing I've noticed for myself is I worked for 30 years, 27 as a mainframe programmer, and then three years as a full-time accessibility tester. And now I'm working full-time, part-time, but I tried to participate in a technical program to be a full-stack engineer and that flopped because I couldn't get the support I needed from the Mm -hmm. school. And it makes me kind of reluctant to try any other technical program. And to make matters worse, I sort of feel like sometimes, and this wasn't the case 30 years ago, that sometimes when I ask blind people for information in that, that I get a response like, well, use my tutorial or it worked for me or it didn't work for me. I mean, in fact, I was talking with someone a couple months ago and he was so flippant and 
these are often were often people that uh had vision at one time and then became totally blind and uh things i think people don't understand that when you use i have a huge cognitive load to deal with sometimes i mean i i I've used four screen readers, three operating systems, several braille display, several note takers, and a computer. And there are times I just want to uh, scream. And uh, I, I, I think things are different for blind people who have always used computers. I didn't use a computer till I was 28. And I sort of feel like I'm being penalized by some other blind people for not trying hard enough. Yeah, I've experienced that too. Um, I've, I've even written about it, how, how, um, the burden, the more the technology, especially the technology, um, uh, there could be other things out there too that's causing this, but the technology is the one that's obvious, makes us, um, aware that, uh, we have capabilities, then the more we are expected to do them. I need to put myself on pause for one second. Bob and, uh, Peter know why. And thank you very okay. much um, for your uh, for your input. We really appreciate that. And, yeah. Uh, while we while we're waiting for Anthony, I I want to make a comment about this whole technology issue, uh, because uh, Sherrod was talking about you know small contents on screens, and I I run into the same problem in the work that I do. But here's the here's the thing that I find interesting: if you talk to sighted colleagues. Uh, at least in my experience, they hate that system. They absolutely hate it. And they wish, you know, they, uh, they, they wish you would go back to, you know, more information on screens and other things that I've heard them talk about. The difference, of course, is for them, it's a pain in the neck, but they can, they can get through it. Often for us, it's much more of a pain in the neck or we can't do it at all. Uh, and, uh, but, but one of the things I, I wish uh, tech, uh, folks who design these technology programs would, would think about is making things more accessible for us often makes it easier for people, uh, uh, who are sighted as well. Uh, I've had too many stories of people, you know, when I, you know, when, when a certain bit of technology or software was not accessible, they'd say, Oh yeah, well, I can use it, but I hate it. And so my rant for the moment is I wish that uh, folks who design these programs make things easier for everybody. Because like, they because of graphics, they, 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 Peter? Is well, that because it, of graphics? I don't know what, the, I don't know what, I don't, it may, may, may be, but whatever, whatever the, whatever it is, making life easier for us disabled people often makes it easier for sighted people as, as well, non-disabled people. And yeah. everybody's grateful. Uh, Ray. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that, A, we have Beth from New Mexico, and then also, uh, to come, I was going to say that I think that sometimes I feel like when programs are designed, like if they design, make them simple, sometimes, you know, simple is best, I feel like sometimes. Simple is awesome. Anthony, are you back? Anthony's not well, back. Let's All see right. what Beth from New let's Mexico see what Beth has wants. To say. And, yeah. and we have about two more minutes, so we can get Beth in, and then we can close up. Beth, go right ahead. All right, Beth, you are our last caller for two minutes. Well, I wanted to ask him, uh, I would like a translator job, but um, the uh, commission wouldn't help me get, they said language online was in Arizona and stuff, and uh, I I could work remotely, but they didn't seem interested in helping me get a job like that, and I don't know, I don't know what to do about it, because 
they're the main people that help me. You know, they wouldn't even help me find a job coach if they wouldn't uh, do anything for me. Oh, why, Beth? I don't know, because our DVR counselors are weird. No, I think they're overworked. They may, you they should may, be, they may have... be weird also, but uh, yeah. I don't know how programs are for you, and this is just my own from my thing, but I know for where I am, when you have the Volk Rehab people, you also should have options of different vendors you can choose from, I believe, as well. So I don't, I don't know if you have that option, but maybe look into what vendors are around for you that work with VR. Well, and and and, and I wish Tony mm-hmm. were here because I suspect he'd have something to say about this. Uh, That's um, right. I, I oh, am good. Back. I good. Am Can, back. Did you hear the question that Beth posed? I missed the question. All right. So, uh, so let me let me in the interest of time, Beth. Hope you don't mind. Uh, Beth is trying to get a job as a so translating uh, things from English to other languages or or whatever. And Voc Rehab is not yeah. going to provide her with the training she needs to make that happen. What is your experience with that when it happens in Voc Rehab? And what are what do you think are better options to to address this? Just because they said that the remote that the language jobs there were in Arizona, but I know we need some here. 30 seconds. Well, the, the, um, sometimes they, they end up throwing the burden right back on you to prove that uh, there are jobs available. And so if you, if you know that there are jobs available and can show them, then, then you, uh, unfortunately, then you have the, uh, the basis of an appeal, um, so that, uh, either the supervisor or somebody will, will, uh, encourage the counselor to do the right thing. Um, so you're dealing with, you're dealing with a, kind of a semi-legalistic system when you're dealing with state agencies. Um, so I'm afraid we're out of time, gentlemen and, and ladies. It's unfortunate. Time goes by fast. It's one of these subjects that we can kick around for God knows how long. Anthony Candela, thank you very much for providing your wisdom, your experience, your knowledge in the field of employing the blind. And keep those good stats coming. 48% of us are employed that are looking for work. That's pretty neat. I hope that continues to increase. Thank you again, and thanks to Raymond and to Peter and everyone else that participated today. Next week, we're going to have Rachel Rosenbaum. She's affiliated with the Carroll Center. She knows about Father Carroll. She wrote a book, and she's going to talk to us about that, as well as uh, the Father Carroll himself. Many of you know who that is. He's directly involved with the creation of the Carroll Center. Thank you, everyone. Go safe with God's abundant Mm. blessings and have a wonderful week. 